if you're taking notes or if you aren't taking notes, I want you to write down on your paper or in your mind uh, two words. Uh, the first word is the word union. And the second word is the word communion. And as I said last time I was with you, I just kind of get to talk to you and share with you uh, a little bit about what's on my heart and the Word of God, and I want to do that again today. So union and communion. And beside the word union, I want you to write, whether on paper or in your mind, the word fixed. Union equals fixed. Communion equals fluctuating. Fluctuating. And so we have union, which is fixed. And then we have communion, which is fluctuating, meaning that it ebbs and flows. Now, I want to get a little bit theological with you as we begin. And then you could say, then get practical. But the reality is, is that all theology is practical. The church is weak because of that dichotomy which never need take place. All theology is practical and all theology doesn't have as its end knowledge. It has as its end the person of Jesus Christ whom we adore and we must adore. But let me begin a little bit. The word union, what is that? Well, theologians use that term to refer to both a federal union and a faith union. What do I mean by that? Well, federal union means that before time began, as your pastor made mention of in his prayer, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, before time began, you can go to Titus 1, 1 and 2, 2 Timothy 1, 9, will tell you that we were saved before time began. What was before time? Before Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Before that, we were saved. You mean, how does that play out? You've got to be careful with your language that we use here. But before time, we were placed into a very special union. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit decreed before time the salvation of a people. And as I walked in the door here this morning, as we do when we're at our church back home, I always think we are a very peculiar people. We're a peculiar people. Before time, God the Father gave to God the Son a peculiar people. And then down through time, God will redeem those people. Those people whom were given by the Father to the Son. As the Son, the Lord Jesus, hung upon that cross, He made an actual atonement. It wasn't a potential one. It was an actual atonement. A potential atonement is where the efficacy 
of Christ's atonement is merely waiting upon the belief of someone. But no, Jesus died an actual death for an actual people upon the cross, and it was all those who were in a federal union with Christ before time. That's, the, that's what is meant by federal union. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration to tie all this together in a moment. But then there is what's called faith union. Federal union first, before time. Federal means covenant. Federal union. And then there is a faith union. What is meant by that? What is meant by that is this. That as we live... At a certain point in time, the Holy Spirit of God comes and regenerates us. And I think I made mention of it last time. And if I didn't, you, sh you can rebuke me for not. Faith, re sorry, regeneration comes before faith. Regeneration precedes faith. We are, we are born again and then we believe. We don't believe, and then born again. Somehow it works. The Holy Spirit comes down through time and regenerates us. And then what happens? We place our faith in Jesus. And that is where, at that point of faith, we lay hold of our union with Jesus. We lay hold of our union with Jesus. It is a union that was ours before eternity passed. We now lay hold of that union by faith. And so God has ordained that it is by faith that we lay hold of that which was promised us before time. That's union. It is a beautiful, beautiful truth. But what about communion? If union is fixed and God doesn't orphan any of his children, our union is fixed, as I said at the beginning. What is communion and why is communion fluctuating? Why is communion ebbing and flowing? Well, union is something that is ours by grace and sovereign grace alone. It's not going anywhere. It's fixed. We are born again and we will be forever the children of God. But communion is something altogether different. And that's what I want to focus on this morning in our time. Communion. Union is fixed. Communion is fluctuating. Why? Because we are, as we have sung, we are prone to wander. We're prone to wander. We still fall into sin as the children of God. And because we have, as our brother pointed out, a war within, which I love the way he put it, it is a sign of health that we have a war within. If there is no war in your heart and mind about the sin in your own life, then that's a bad sign. If we have this war within that we're aware of, that there are sins that we can be given to, that's a good thing. 
it's not good to be overcome by that sin and held in bondage to that sin, but it's good to be aware that there's a battle within. And because there is a battle within, you and I, as the people of God, we need specific urgings. We need specific comforts. We need specific things that will help us to maintain our communion with God. What is meant by communion? Well, an earthly example is for everyone who is married here. And if you're not married here, take this as a as a warning, as a precursor, that a marriage would utterly fail if there is no communion. There is no communication. There is no fellowship. There is no harmony. There is no relationship. It would fall apart. Well, it's just like that with us and our Father. We must commune with God. There's ways in which we do that. God the Father hasn't left us alone. He has given us very specific tools, if you will, or means to be able to maintain communion with Him. We want to have the deepest and richest communion we can have. And maybe you're here this morning and, 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 and you're feeling in a dry place. Maybe sin has recently got the better of you and we all need to be encouraged to pursue the deepest communion we can have. John Owen has written extensively on union and communion, and I encourage his works to you. They're brilliant. And so this morning, I want to give each of us, my own heart included, four ways in which we can deepen and maintain communion with God as we live our life as we are prone to wander. If we're prone to wander, then we need to, and this is the title of the message this morning, we need to run to Jesus. We walk and wander away from Jesus, well, we need to run to Jesus. And so I just want us to go through uh, various scripture passages this morning. I trust that these four ways will stick with you, and I trust that they'll be a blessing to you to aid us to always remember and never forget that while we have been blessed with a rich and ever-present union with Christ, that we have been once in union with Adam and that only ever resulted in death and disaster, we have by grace been placed in union with Jesus Christ, which only ever results in love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, gentleness, and eternal life. We need to be forever seeking deeper communion. And so the first of these four ways that I want us to consider this morning, and they do come in the way of commands, urgings. Number one is that we need to run to his people. We need to run to his people. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter two. And we're just going to journey together through various passages of Scripture in the time that we have this morning. And so Acts chapter 2, and when you get there, I want you to turn to verse 41. I'm sure this is a very familiar passage to you. And you know, if I was at another place that had kind of shirked the gathering of the saints and the assembling of the people and hadn't elevated such a high view of what it means to be together, then maybe I would come with more strong urgings, but you are a precious people who knows the importance of being together 
as the people, but nonetheless, we must excel still more, prone to wander, prone to all sorts of things. And so look at verse 41, Acts 2. So then those who had received his word, Peter is preaching, they had received his word. They didn't reject it. They received it. They were then baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is the beginning of the church. This is, we know that. Look what they were doing. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. The apostles' teaching is the doctrine. The fellowship is what we're doing all day, praise God, today. The breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Day by day, verse 46, they were in one mind. They were going from house to house. They were having meals together with gladness and sincerity of their heart. And verse 47, they were praising God and they were having favor with all people and the Lord continued to bless them. If you and I are going to live as we ought so as to bring glory to God, we don't live an isolated life on an island. You know that, I know that, but I'll tell you what you and I also know. You and I also know that when we isolate ourselves for whatever reason, we begin to look inward and shrink up and shrivel up. And we've been able to fellowship with a number of Christian friends around the place and some of the churches responded in different ways. And I can tell you that there is just now a clear, direct correlation that when you ch closed your church, you isolated people and shriveled and began people began to shrivel up and it's not good. And so you have reaped the harvest of not doing that and trust that you continue to experience the blessings and benefits of that. But you know what it's like when you're not making use of the means of grace to be among God's people. You even like I witness not only in our own heart but you witness others as they don't do that either they begin to be conformed into the image of this world their thinking is not being renewed and so on and so forth hebrews chapter 10 turn with me there hebrews chapter 10 hebrews chapter 10 and Verse 19 is an amazing verse in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, they say, will either kill the preacher or kill the church if you preach through it. And so be warned. Because it's, it, it is so rich, it's so deep, but also in many ways it's mysterious. And when we read Hebrews, it can be incredibly foreign terminology that is uh, somewhat strange to us, but you plumb the depths of Hebrews and there are true treasures. John Owen, again to mention him, wrote some 16 volumes, I think, on Hebrews alone. He wrote two volumes, I believe, as an introduction on Hebrews and they're both about this thick. Maybe it was just one, but Hebrews is 
immense. And do you know what? When you get to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, there have been 10 chapters prior filling your heart and mind with the truth about how Jesus is greater. Jesus is the final and full sacrifice. Jesus is immense and superior and supreme, rich, rich truths. And when you get to verse 19, it is the practical therefore. How then shall we live in light of such truth? Look there. Brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the first of a few applications there. We, we have confidence, he says in verse 19. The reason we have confidence in verse 19 is because of Christ. We have assurance. We have full assurance of our faith. We no longer doubt. We don't have waverings. Because, and if you do, let this be a comfort to you, because of Christ. Martin Luther said, if you look to yourself, you will not know how you can be saved. But if you look to Jesus Christ, you can marvel about and, and wonder about how you cannot be saved. You can never doubt when you look to Christ. If you look to your own works of obedience as the grounds which is where you find your assurance, you will always doubt. But if you look to the objective work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, you will never, ever doubt. You have full assurance, it says there in verse 22. Then in verse 23, we see more practical outworking of a deep Christology. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then we have more application of what it means to understand and be in union with Jesus. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. One of the chief ways that is made evident, one of the chief ways that is made evident is in verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. I don't have to talk to you about how crucial it is to, to gather. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, it's one thing to talk about the weather. It's one thing to talk about the grass. It's one thing to talk about all sorts of things, and they are good and well to talk about. But they don't accomplish the encouraging here. They don't accomplish what is desired here. As we run to his people, we encourage one another to be to be stimulating one another to love and good deeds. We encourage one another to lay hold of a full assurance of faith. We encourage one another to have confidence as, as you enter the holy place to pray. You have access through Jesus. Flick back with me to Hebrews 3 for a moment. I want to show you now, and you understand this, the severity of not laying hold of the importance of being together. 
verse 12 of Hebrews 3. Take care, the author says, take care, brethren, true believers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. These are commands to the children of God. We must encourage one another day after day. What's the purpose? Look at the middle of verse 13. So that, that's what's called a hina clause in the Greek. It's the purpose of all of this. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. You and I can never lose our salvation because it is a federal fixed union that is permanent. This is a warning to believers. And so we need to take notice of this warning. We can be so hardened by sin that we enter into patterns of sin and the way that God has ordained for us to avoid falling into those patterns of sin is to be in fellowship with his people. You know, there's a there's a real importance to being with God's people, and you know that. So we first, in order to maintain communion with our God, rich communion, we first run to his people. The next way we do that is we run to his power. We run to his power. To explain a little bit of this, I want you to turn with me. I'm going to keep you busy, as I said, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We run to his power. Now, last time I was with you, I gave you a Latin phrase. Not so I sound smart, I'm the exact opposite. I gave you a Latin phrase. Duplex gratia. Do you remember what that means? Double graces. Good. Double graces. Duplex gratia. Just by way of reminder. John Calvin used that term. Duplex gratia, double graces. We have Christ for pardon. The forgiveness of our sins. Christ for us. And we have Christ for power. For the sanctification. For communion. Christ in us. Christ for pardon, Christ for power. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Let's first look at verse 28. Paul says, as a new covenant minister, we proclaim him. That's our goal. We proclaim Jesus. Too many new covenant ministers who stand behind pulpits preach themselves. Paul said, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man, person, complete in Christ. Now, 
When we laid hold of our union by faith, we were made complete. We were made complete. But at the same time, we are continuing as we commune with our God in the person of Christ. We are continually being transformed from one level of glory to the next. But look what Paul says in verse 29. He says, this is the purpose that he labors. This is the purpose that all of us labor, particularly pastors striving. All of us, though, we all strive. Look what it says there, according to his power, which mightily works within me. And so we must run to his power. So often we run, run to our own. Our own is like a solar panel when it doesn't have the light of the sun. It just drains out. For Christmas, we got, my mother is, she's not a Christmas Grinch, but she, we didn't really grow up with the, some of you probably fill your homes with all the Christmas stuff. My mother didn't really do that. We often just had a little tree. But when we arrived from overseas, we noticed that my mother's house was a little bare. She had something on the door and maybe a little star somewhere. But our youngest really wanted a Christmas tree. And uh, so we uh, found a Christmas tree that um, was quite unique and interesting looking from one of the $2 shops in Sydney Road. And we're doing this all for our little one and we got some stuff and decorated and we found some little lights, Christmas lights. And there was a solar panel. And Isla uh, was concerned that the lights would run out. And they did because it's inside. There's no solar panel there. But little Isla figured out a way where she could get the solar panel into the sun and, and it would maintain its brightness. And if she moved it away from there, the lights would go out. But our life is like that. Too often we eclipse the sun. We eclipse the eternal sun and he cannot shine his grace and power into our life. There is power for us to run to and so often we run away from it. We must run to his power which mightily works within us. And I thought a little bit about what's an example of this power? What's an example of it? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And when you get there, look at verse 9. You know this. Jesus' disciples had come and said to him, Teach us how to pray. How do we pray? Teach us to pray. And Jesus says, pray then like this. Pray then in this way. Now, some of you have come from Roman Catholic backgrounds. You know that this prayer is known as the Lord's Prayer. It's recited as penitence. It's recited as all sorts of things. This is not the Lord's Prayer. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. This is the model prayer. This is the prayer template. But let's look at it. Jesus says, our Father who is in heaven, our Father, we are his children. He is in heaven. 
much could be said there. We have been adopted. We were once disobedient children, sons of disobedience. We were adopted in. So the first thing we acknowledge is that we have a father. We no longer have a judge. Hallowed or holy. Hallowed be your name. May your name be made holy. Your kingdom come. That's an amazing phrase. Your kingdom come. The longing of every child of God is that God's kingdom would come. And in a remarkable way, God's kingdom has come. It is manifest in its greatest way when God's people gather together to worship him and sing of his praises. That's the spiritual kingdom here on earth. But the longing is that God's kingdom would come. That's why you go out and perform evangelism as an event as a church, but that's why you also perform evangelism as a lifestyle as you go out about your day, frequenting certain places, building relationships with people because the longing for your heart is that the kingdom would be established both here on earth and then a full expression of that kingdom in a day to come. Jesus reigns now as king and will reign in a day to come as king your will be done same idea your will be done this is debated a little bit this phrase there is what's called the decretive will where god is sovereign over all things or there is the preceptive will what god commands and so your will be done the longing of the child of god is that which god has sovereignly ordained as his will would be fulfilled as his people are the instrument to fulfill that will by living obedient lives to him, bringing him glory on earth as it is in heaven. And then this, this phrase, give us this day our daily bread. I love the limitation upon that. Maybe you haven't thought about this before. He doesn't say, give us this day everything that would make my life complete, a bigger house, a car, a holiday home, uh, X, Y, and Z. He just says, give me this day just what's enough for today. I'm not saying those other things are evil. I'm just saying that God wants us to pray for what is most pertinent. Why? Because then we would maintain a level of dependency upon him. The power from Christ is in the dependency upon Christ. Too often you and I forget Christ and try and act like little solar panels. Brian, it's shining all bright for a moment, but when the sun, S-O-N, is gone, everything fades and we realize we should have been drawing down from the power in Christ. And the chief way we do that is through prayer. And prayer really is the hardest of all the spiritual disciplines. I think it's attacked by Satan the most. Our flesh resists it the most. We partake of it the least. And we all need to turn more to God in prayer. Because, look at the next verse. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I paraphrased there. And that's the chief point. 
If you are not running to his power, you will become bitter. If you are not running to his power, you will become covetousness. You will become someone who cannot forgive. And if you and I aren't praying and drawing down power in prayer as our minds and hearts are communing with Jesus Christ, then we will be given to the great hypocrisy of proclaiming to be forgiven greatly by grace and granting no grace to others as we forgive. I'll speak just a little moment about conditional forgiveness and unconditional forgiveness. I think both uh, have great merit, of course, but I think if you run too far in either direction, you cause issues. What is meant by conditional forgiveness in the Christian life is I will only forgive that brother or sister when they repent. And we see that in the Bible. That's how God forgave us. The believer repents and then we forgive. And then the other idea of con unconditional forgiveness is we just forgive and there doesn't need to be any seeking of forgiveness in any transaction. Well, if you run to two extremes, I think you missed the point. I'll tell you for why. Conditional forgiveness. I'll ask you a question. If you become so strong on conditional forgiveness and you hold it where you will only forgive when someone confesses sin and seeks forgiveness, I'll ask you a question. Have you confessed every sin that God has forgiven you for? And the answer is no, you have not. You haven't. If we run too far in the an unconditional aspect, there will never be the seeking of proper transaction of forgiveness, and that too is a significant problem. And so we must forgive. But you'll only able to be able to forgive as you run to His power and you don't eclipse the sun, but allow Him to fill you with His love and grace. And the same is true of the next verse, lead us not into temptation. When the disciples, who are like you and I, Ask the Lord Jesus how to pray. Man, he knows our frame, doesn't he? He knows our frame. We are, forgive, we are given to being self-reliant, not asking for daily bread. We are prone to not forgiving. And, then he, and we are prone to being led into temptation. Tempted by our flesh and by the devil and the lust of our eyes and the like. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, in the Greek there, that is not saying from evil as though there's some evil force in this world, though there is. That is literally saying in the Greek from the evil one, from Satan, from the evil one. Deliver us from Satan. Satan has some power to influence me, but greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. But unless I'm laying hold of Christ's power, through prayer, that's just, there's other ways to lay hold of it, but I'm giving you a specific example here. Through prayer, we'll be led into temptation and the evil one, the devil, will consume us. Let's now go to third. We've looked at we need to run to his people to maintain communion. We need to run to his power to maintain communion. Third, we need to run to his promises. Run to his promises. And with that, turn with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. I've always held this little promise dear. It's embedded upon, in amongst serious, solemn, 
commands to me as a husband, to, to any wives that are here, any future husbands, any future wives, you know this passage very well. Ephesians 5 verse 22 through to 33 is that marriage passage where husbands are told three times to love their wives. Have you ever observed that? That three times in that passage, God says, husbands, love your wives. Three times. Remember Ray Comfort used to say, men need to be told things twice. Abraham, Abraham. Saul, Saul. Well, here, sorry, Ray, men need to be told things three times. Husbands, love your wives. He knows we can be selfish. He knows we can be selfish. But look at what he says in verse 29. Speaking to the husbands, he said, love your wives as your own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh. I mean, sometimes you and I don't look after ourselves as we ought, but we brush our teeth, we shower, we groom. But look what Christ does in verse 29. Christ also nourishes and cherishes the church. It's a beautiful tucked away promise. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. I mean, that's a remarkable promise. Jesus doesn't promise to nourish and cherish this building or Riverbend's building or these speakers or Riverbend's speakers. He promises to nourish and cherish. What is meant by nourish and cherish? Those words literally mean this, to provide and protect to provide and protect. And last time I was here, you shared with me some of the stories, what you went through during all that last few years. Is that promise not true of what you guys went through? To provide and protect? Well, we can lay hold of God's promises. You know, I used this portion here to comfort many of our people as they began to lose their jobs during that horrendous, wicked segregation that your government and our government performed. God promises to nourish and cherish the church, the physical people who assemble as the church on the Lord's day, but those same people as the children of God then go out and work and so take this as a promise to you that God promises to provide and protect for his church, his people who gather corporately during the Lord's Day, but you go out and earn and work and raise your kids at home. God will provide for you and he will protect you. These are great promises. That's a great promise, which gives us warmth. But I want to share one other promise that is a bit of a kick in the backside. Revelation chapter 2. Turn with me there. Revelation chapter 2. You know this passage very well. These are the actual, literal seven churches. They were on a postal 
root. They are actual churches. It's not allegorized to mean something else. They were literal churches. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. You are a discerning church. You have sound doctrine. You have, and then verse 3, you have perseverance and you have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. You have faced opposition. You have not grown weary. You keep going on. Sound doctrine. Discernment. Sounds a lot like Riverbend Bible Church. Sounds a lot like Saving Grace Bible Church. Sounds a lot like other good and faithful churches. But I have this against you. Verse 4. You have left your first love left your first love do you remember when you first came to know the lord and how sweet it was maybe you have a day and maybe you don't have a day maybe you just look back and see my affections were altered king jesus subdued my sinful desires at some point king jesus altered my affections and and I, and i and i look back and i i know i've been a child of god and i look back in those times and i think yeah there was a there was a joy in my salvation that has been lost there is a hardening of my heart that has occurred and king jesus says i have this against you that you have left your first love you say, Matthew, that's not a promise. But look, look what verse 5 says. Therefore, remember. Just remember. No works of penance, no Hail Marys. No rigorous asceticism and harsh treatment of the body. Just remember. Bring to mind the joy of your salvation. Bring to mind the preciousness of Jesus. That you were once a child of darkness and death and by grace are now a child of life and light. Just remember. That's all he says, remember. And then if we think that this is somehow some kind of trivial thing, look what he says next, and repent. Repent. Repent, and look at this, and do the deeds you did at first. Something has eclipsed your heart if you are not moved right now. Something has eclipsed your heart, repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That's a promise. But in that promise is contained much, much grace. Well, our time is basically up. The fourth way we can ensure communion, ongoing communion with our God that brings glory to God is to run to his person, run to his person. We've run to his people, run to his power, run to his promises, and now run to his person very quickly. Matthew chapter 11, verse 
with me. Matthew 11. Look at verse 28. Run to his person. If you were to compile a list of what I am like and run it by Lisa so more can be added to it, or if your wife or someone who knows you dearly or your husband or whoever was able to write a list of all of what you're truly like, it wouldn't be very impressive. There would be spots of grace-filled brilliance, but the mass of it would be an expression of your frailty and humanity and sinfulness. But look at what Jesus' person is like. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We found rest for our souls at justification when we believed in Jesus and laid hold of our union with Christ, we found rest for our souls. Eternal rest. But we keep living and we keep wandering and we keep seeking satisfaction in that which never truly satisfies. And so not only do we find rest for our souls in justification, when we run to Jesus' person, who he is, gentle and humble, full of meekness and power, we will find rest for our souls along the journey. It's not a rest from serving him. It's not a rest in seeking utopia. It's a rest for our souls as our souls are given to worship and adore him. Very quickly, John 7. John 7 and verse 37. Jesus at the Feast of Booths. This is just remarkable. We recently went through this whole chapter as a church and it's unbelievable. But very quickly, look at verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And drink. Verse 38 He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. We receive that water at justification, but man, we drink of that water in sanctification. And unless you and I are running to the person who was by the well, who freely gives water, we will die of thirst, we'll shrivel up. And our communion will be non-existent. But God is worthy of a deep, rich communion, is he not? I want to close by reading the words from Luke chapter 12. And I loved how our brother went to Luke 12. And I'm picking up, and you didn't know this at the time, brother, but I'm picking up the verses just after you. Luke chapter 12, and then we're done. Luke chapter 12, verse 25. 
Jesus' words, which of you, this is his person, which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying. For all these things, the nations of the world eagerly seek. Did you hear that? For all these things, the nations of the world eagerly seek. You are not of this world. Don't be given to those things. But your father knows what you need. He knows that you need these things. He knows what you need. Verse 31, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom, run to his people. Seek his kingdom, run to his power. Seek his kingdom, run to his promises. Seek his kingdom, run to his person. Verse 32, do not be afraid. Look what he says next. Little flock. Do not be afraid, little flock. That's what we are. We are the sheep of his pasture. For your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We are in union with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is fixed. We must be ever in communion with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We must run to his people. We must run to his power. We must run to his promises. We must run to his person. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for the opportunity to be together in your word. Lord, we are prone to wander. And by your grace, you use the Lord's day and all that it contains, specifically the preached word, but not exclusively, to realign our hearts and minds. And so would you do that today in my heart, in the heart of my family, in the heart of this church family, in the heart of we, your people. Help us to remember. Help us to remember, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.